running. Liftoff. We have a liftoff. girlfriend was trying to find a place for us to go for my birthday and this lady was like well we're not actually leaving that weekend we're going to be here but you can stay here and then they can earn you know credits points, yes. you know, points on their account so we went to Antwerp and that was like the first one of the first I think travel places I went to and man I fell in love like I thought it was so beautiful and the chocolate's so good the beer's so good what's that big street I think it starts with an M the big long shopping street Ment. is it Ment? Ment. the same as Ment. here no that mayor no, nah, that's it. The yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, it's been a long time. Uh, I, I, I do love some more of the uh, uh, artsy neighborhoods. <laughs> but uh, I remember the mayor uh, when I was there. So I studied at Ruka, uh, the university, um, a lifetime ago. I did a um, research on um, genetics. You're going to think I'm crazy and I've done all this kind of very different things in life. Environmental engineer with the winery that studied what kind of genetics? <laughs> so there was a study on um, the difference in mating uh, when, uh, so I'm an environmental engineer and there's uh, a wastewater treatment um, facilities. They don't treat everything that we flush down the toilet, namely neuropharmaceuticals. So antidepressants, the pill, whatever works with your hormones and things like that, they get flushed on the toilet. And we did a study. This was in 2002. Um, and I, I just joined this ongoing study um, on how this would affect um, mating and breeding uh, from uh, zebrafish and uh, the Schelde, the river there. And then you could extrapolate the effect that has on ecosystems. It's, it's massive, actually. So you do see uh, a lot of um, problems with um, mating. Uh, and it gives us to think you don't think, you think about pollution on, you know, plastics and big things. But neuropharmaceuticals are also uh, a kind of pollution. And it's destroying the, the life yeah. of the ecosystems. So this is what I did back then. Um, we mapped the DNA, uh, how that changed the DNA of the fish. <laughs> I'm a little scared actually right now <laughs> listening to you talk about this because this is, uh, I heard some stuff from um, one scientist who was talking about how all of these, um, what are they called again? The pesticides like in the soil and in the water and how they're changing, you know, the um, testosterone levels and the sperm count of men and stuff like that. Yes, and absolutely. Now, now you're talking about actual DNA changes yes. of animals. Oh, um, you are, we are an animal. Sure, so, sure. The human animal. Yeah, I'm fine. Uh, Zebrafish, they're one of the most common uh, used animals in research because they have a, well, they have a, a, a short life. They reproduce very fast and everything happens very fast. So you can study uh, everything in their lifespan and just extrapolate from that. Um, on the Schelde, you know, uh, it's, it's a very big river, uh, where we dump, a uh, big city where we dump uh, wastewater, treated wastewater. Uh, and, uh, so that was a, a good thing, but yes, uh, everything from pesticides, you talk about food, you talk about neurotoxicity. So it changes hormones, it changes DNA, it changes, we've been engineering 
a system we don't comprehend. Mm. <laughs> and of course, that's going to be a lot of lot of things that are going to fail if you're uh, tinkering with something that you don't really understand. Mm. Interesting. Okay, so why don't we, before we get too deep off into this, let's just do the intro. So we're here with Anna, and we're going to talk about your your winery business, but you have an incredibly, I think, diverse background for somebody who who owns a, a winery. Um, so I think that, you know, you might expect somebody to be from a horticulture background or, I don't know, maybe just super rich and their family owned wineries their whole life or something. So why don't you just tell, you know, the viewers and listeners, you know, who you are and kind of what you're doing right now. First, I'm going to correct you as I do not own a winery. Ah, okay. Grapekeeper is not a winery. Grapekeeper is more of a vertical approach to direct to people who actually do not own wineries, but would like to. It's a step before. So what we do is we collaborate uh, with um, extremely, well, premium, well-known, full of history wineries throughout the world who also are very strong in the three pillars of sustainability in, in wineries. So on the field, on the way that the, the viticulture is actually done uh, while producing the wine, but also in uh, sustainable regional development, on giving back on society, the society they actually are implemented in, they use to produce these delicious wines. People get to adopt a plot of this land and they receive from this, they receive the experience as close as possible uh, as if they would actually be there and they get to, they get invited, they get bi-monthly reports on how everything is happening on the field with the wine. And then the wine is made for them and labeled for them. So they get way behind the, the curtain, the, the backstage of how a winery works. And the idea of Grapekeeper was to bring people in this uh, sustainable luxury experience as close as possible to actually what sustainability is and works way beyond the buzzword. Mm, okay. <laughs> and this is, well, how my background informs uh, the starting of Grapekeeper. So then, sorry for my confusion, but um, because I read on the website that, yeah, you kind of have the opportunity to become like, it's like you're your to own. Have, to have a vineyard experience. Right. Yes. Yeah. So. <laughs> your very own vineyard. So I get to be basically kind of like a vineyard owner, like a mini vineyard owner. Yes, you have to have, you get to have the experience of a vineyard owner before you actually buy your very own vineyard. You get to be sting without the sting because then you don't have either the costs nor the risks associated with actually owning it. Mm. But so you don't consider yourself like the owner of the whole thing. You're no. just a facilitator. I am. I'm, the, I'm a facilitator. Okay. I work. I work with established, uh, uh, established producers that I admire very much. Uh, not only for their family history, they're mostly fourth, fifth, sixth uh, generation uh, vineyards. So it's, it, they are family affairs. They know very much not only the land but also the culture, the soil, and the people. It is a people's uh, business, uh, and they they understand the the impact of all these sustainable decisions all by themselves and i wanted to i wanted people to experience more than telling them about you know oh you know you can can make this decision in life and this is going to happen or if you buy this is going to be better organic wine is so much better sustainable wine is so much better it's all fine but what if they experience it mm -hmm. ah, okay 
So I have to say then that it's because until I actually speak with you, you know, and find out the real story behind it, that of course, when I'm reading that on the website, it could all just kind of be marketing speak, right? Because it's a very trendy thing now where, especially with celebrities. So it seems like most celebrities are now trying to move to some sort of an ownership model rather than an endorsement model. So now it's very common with, you know, with a number of well-known celebrities who now have their own, you know, liquor brands or wine, you know, brands, things like that. Um, and it seems, you know, that it used to be back in the day that clothing brands was kind of common for, you know, mogul types. And so I think that with a lot of these celebrities, they're basically, you know, just putting their name on something and maybe they'll have some good story about, you know, I'm a big tequila fan. So I tried all the tequilas and made sure that it was exactly right. So it could be, you know, that when I'm reading this website, that that's kind of the trend that you're, you know, no. taking advantage of. And then of course, like you said, sustainability is so trendy that of course, if you say some stuff here about sustainability, now you've got the best of both worlds, but it sounds like you actually do really, you know, care and have this other motive of the success of these local people who, like you say, their families have been in it for years. They, they really care about it and understand it. And so that seems also part of your, your priority here. It is, it was, it is the priority, the sustainability of uh, the part of the sustainability part of the business. It's actually where everything started. Mm. So I, um, I have this background and uh, I'm an environmental engineer and I've worked, I don't know, 17 plus years, uh, a lot of them in consulting different countries uh, with either climate change, sustainability, biodiversity, natural capital, all those things. Some of them already buzzwords, some others will become, hopefully. <laughs> <laughs> and um, I do come from a winemaking culture as well. My grandfather made wine. I grew up around, I grew up there making wine from, I don't know, three-year-old, four-year-old, running around, stumping grapes. In Portugal. Yes, in Portugal. I'm Portuguese. And um, then I wanted, I somehow fell back in love with that later in life. And I was visiting all these wineries. I did some studies as well. I did WSET, some winemaking studies and things like that. I tend to go deep in all my interests and um, <laughs> I need to understand how things work. And then I really wanted to bring these two worlds together. So, um, but I don't, storytelling sells. I, I understand that. But it is very important for me if you want to change the way people view the world or understand their their consumption or the experience of life you actually have to make them feel mm -hmm. and this is why for me wine uh was such a beautiful way uh a carrier of these notions of doing well drink good do good mm. because uh drink good do good <laughs> it's it's like music mm. Music makes you experience things that sometimes you um, either you're formatted by society or formatted by your own mind. You don't see them uh, in different angles. And music allows you to tap into these uh, feelings and sensations that you get to analyze later in your own mind. Wine also allows for that. Uh, it's an experience. It's a product that it makes you experience so many different things and it's also a social product so uh, our customers not only they experience the lifestyle but then they get to share their very own bottles with their family and friends and for me this was very attractive because it has this trickling down effect mm -hmm. 
Wow, it's very interesting. It's also, so you already mentioned before when we were speaking about Valentina and she does these, you know, like experience workshops with, you know, with sound and the visuals and the taste and all this kind of stuff. But also, you know, um, in episode two, I believe. So my friend Boss, he's the milk sommelier. And so that's also kind of how he got started was he just loved milk. And so he would do these, you know, workshops and things for people where they would come to the farm, they would see how the cow is milked, and they would just drink the, the milk, you know, fresh. And it was all about the experience of being able to see like how the, the soil and the grass that this cow eats, you know, and where it's raised and how it's fed and the climate there and all these things. And it was just kind of how that appreciation for the experience um, actually leads them to uh, care more about sustainability and care more about the farm and the animals and things like that. And his whole kind of, you know, what he advocates for when he talked about like the food, uh, you know, um, supply system and things like that is people are so far removed from the actual process of how their food is made. And if they actually experience it, it's just better for everybody because that's the way that they actually learn. So it's so interesting to hear you, you know, from the, and so he's the milk sommelier and now you're with wine. It's interesting to, to hear you also talk about using this experience to teach people about sustainability in a real way and not just, you know, on paper. Well, then it's no longer a word. Then it's, it, it's part of your journey. It's part of your life. And I think um, one of the main goals was that people would no longer see them as removed uh, from the the system, the ecosystem of making wine or milk or potatoes. Uh, but once you see yourself as being part of it, then you see the links between you and the things you consume in a very different way. And and then in a very pleasurable way with wine. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Yeah. Anytime you can add alcohol, it makes it a little bit. There's alcohol and alcohol. <laughs> there's, there's, there's very good wine and there's less good wine. And there's wine that is made in a regenerative way that adds up. And there's wine that is made in a less good way that actually takes a lot, takes a lot from, um, from the land, takes a lot from the people. Uh, you do end up drinking something with alcohol, but um, very, very different uh, input to yep. both your health and the ecosystem. And so what about if we just go back to the, the business model again yes. and the product itself? So you know, let's say for me, you know, I have this podcast and I want to, you know, have something that I can promote and not just do silly ads or something like that. And so I say, oh, I want to start, you know, my own wine label. Um, and then, you know, you have, uh, you know, Weaver Wine or whatever. Yes, absolutely. That's exactly what people can do. That's exactly what people can do. So um, we, uh, you go to, to the website, www.grapekeeper.com and you get, so we curate this vineyards not only for how uh, strong their, um, how good their wine is, how special the vineyards are, uh, how good, proven good the winemaker is, but also how different experience they can get. Uh, you can get a wine from it, a white wine from Italy, which has a certain experience. There's the lifestyle experience uh, coupled to it, or a very uh, arty uh, uh, um, contemporary culture. Uh, close to uh, next to the wine experience in Spain, very old vineyard in Douro. There's several countries, and you can start by adopting one plot in Champagne, or you can start by building also your vineyard library instead of building a cellar. 
what, what do you what do you mean by that? So you could have separate plots and different. Yes. Oh wow. Okay. You can have you can have several plots, smaller plots, and then have this experience in several countries and different regions. The, the experience itself is very different, and the outcome, the wine, your very own wine, is also going to be very different. And you so you could have even separate types of wine in your yes. own collection. Wow, that's nuts, man. The idea is that you collect experiences. You also get to be in you know, this immersion, this contact with the culture as well. Um, it's it's way more than wine. So you adopt this plot of land, and while uh, before harvest, and um, you get to follow the life cycle of a vineyard. Every two months, you get a um, a report and how your adopted vineyard is is growing. Everything that happens from the the bursting of the buds to the growing of the grapes, uh, the ripening of the grapes, you get you get a part of education there, and also you know also what is regenerative agriculture. Uh, and that's behind sustainability, what actually happens with a biodiverse soil, all those things. So you really get like these, it really is like you adopt it because you get these progress reports of its whole life cycle. And then you're also creating these kind of evangelists for sustainability because now they have this, these talking points that they go tell yes. all their friends and, oh, wow, you're a genius. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I see what you're doing here. Thank you. <laughs> I'm not sure if I agree with the genius part, but, <laughs> but there was a lot of thought into a grape keeper. Uh, and it's, of course, it needs to be a business, but it's, it's a passion business and it's a business with a purpose right. for me. It really, it started from the purpose. Yeah. And so and how, then, how, how much, um, I don't, maybe it's a negotiable thing or they have to, depends on how you customize it or whatever, but. Everything is, a, is customizable. And, but we do have some standard packages uh, from starting small, um, 200 square meters, 300 square meters uh, from 150 bottles. Then you share a barrel with someone to, and then the more you adopt, the more customizable your experience and your wine will be. Mm. And everything is also very different from vineyard to vineyard, as it as it should be. A vineyard in Champagne is very different than a vineyard in Doro. Mm. And so, what would be the cost of like? Let, let's not say the I don't want to know the cheapest, but the most kind of common of what fits most people's needs. If you had like a a median level, how much would it cost someone to? Oh, you're asking me about costs with it's like with real estate. You know, mm. an apartment in Manhattan is very different than as an apartment in um, rural Spain. And it happens with the vineyards as well. The cost of production, uh, everything, they're very different. But I think that from like 7,000 euros, you can already have a very in-depth experience. Really? Yes. Wow. Okay. That's fairly reasonable, I think. Yes, it is. I was expecting more, to be honest. I, I, no, I should rethink that. <laughs> <laughs> no, that, let, me, let me get am, in and then rethink it. <laughs> I, I, I'm serious about that because I started Grapekeeper and I really wanted to give everybody the chance to do that. So I'm not aiming to the super rich. Mm -hmm. I'm aiming to something a bit more approachable. Right. Uh, we can talk about the struggles of being an entrepreneur in Corona plus inflation times. Oh God. Yeah, sure. I did suffer a bit. So the, um, so cause I mean, 7,000, I think that's quite reasonable from a you know business perspective, especially. And so do you think it's a viable, because obviously if somebody does this as kind of a hobbyist, right, let's say that you know, Susan, she loves wine and she really, you know, is looking for something that she can be passionate about. She does this and then she sells it to all of her friends and, and things like that. No, for 7,000 euros, you don't get to do that. Most 99, uh, most of our clients, 99% of our clients, they're private. So they just uh, keep it themselves. They, well, they end up 
gifting them to most of their friends. That's mm. they don't get to drink a lot of the wine. They got bathe for them. They this happens when you produce more. Then then we get into that model where Susan gets to sell it to to her friends. Um, but actually, what's what I what I've experienced with the clients is that they tend to go to smaller plots and then diversify, build this what we call the vineyard library. Um, where they they just they collect experiences and then they share them with their friends, uh, which is also where most of our clients come from is word of mouth. Right. Um, right. So the, we we do uh, Grapekeeper has been building markets in different countries, um, but um, it is very very strong on very good experience from the first customers that then told their friends who told their friends who told their friends. And then the thing is, um, it is mostly for private. It's people that ever, they, Susan dreams of having her very own wine made. And uh, she has looked into buying a vineyard. I can assure you the costs are <laughs> ginormous and very scary. <laughs> I believe you. <laughs> and if someone is telling you a very good story and don't count on the risks. <laughs> uh, and then Grapekeeper is a difference. As, as I said, you get to be sting, but we doubt this thing mm -hmm. because we kind of cap your risks on crop loss and uh, and those things mm. so for seven thousand euros we might be talking about something between 87 uh 87 bottles to 100 just start you're going to be sharing a um yeah that's a, a specific uh, number though 87 i like that uh <laughs> scientific specificity i am an engineer so for seven thousand, you can get 87 bottles <laughs> maybe 100 well because but... because we cap the crop loss uh there's a range of 20 mm. percent where you can go um and i was you know i have this this vineyard in mind and that it ranges from there then of course when you when you adopt a bigger plot uh all of these costs are diluted you know mm. economics of scale but it's definitely so it sounds like at least for that, you know, that early price point, that's it is more for the experience. So it's someone who enjoys wine. They've always wanted this experience. But of course, to buy your own vineyard is almost insane for, you know, most normal humans. So you're offering them that piece of the experience. And so that's OK. That's good to know just for the, the purposes of how it all works. We have more expensive vineyards and we have also more uh, high scale very very highly customizable uh, uh roads as well which are these are two events yeah but but correct me if i'm wrong but so for most people who are kind of like i mean i guess we could call them amateurs because they're let's say they don't come from families yes. of, who had vineyards and whatever from what i've seen those people who decide even the rich people who go and say i'm gonna buy a vineyard we're gonna do this and that to even you know break even would, would be like a miracle for them, they feel like. Like they, they kind of go into it knowing that it's going to be a bit of a money pit, you know, at least quite early on. So you are actually offering people, you know, not basically a way that they can do it, like you say, for a much more managed cost, much lower risk. I mean, you're not going to go in, you know, invest a million dollars plus and then lose it or lose 800,000 of it. So it really is, I think, even um, for anybody who has ever thought about, oh, that would be, you know, interesting or something like that. I think I, I don't think that I know of anything similar to this to offer people, you know, because the vineyard experience is such a crazy grand experience. So to even offer a piece of that to people, it seems like I don't know of anybody else that's doing anything similar to that. Um, no, there's not a lot more now. Even even without vineyards, I mean, it's almost like if somebody, I don't know, said that you could uh, have a piece of an amusement park or something like that. You know what I mean? It's well, like well, you it can seems adopt like it and enjoy it. Yeah, well. 
time sharing oh, right, of a right. piece of an amusement park. Yeah. Oh, can you do that? I know you could do like, you know, a resort or something, but. Uh, I don't know if you can, but that was a good idea. We'll call somebody else about <laughs> that one. Yeah. We'll write that one down. So how did you, um, cause so going back to the sustainability part, um, because obviously the, the interest and the knowledge and the experience with sustainability led you to, and I'm guessing you had a passion for wine previous as well. And knowledge. And knowledge. I also okay. did training in wine. So we can talk about that in a bit as well. How did the origin of the sustainability passion knowledge experience come about? I was drunk. An opinion. <laughs> you were drunk where? I was drunk in Piemonte. Okay. <laughs> I'm serious. I like where this is going. <laughs> I'm serious. There's this in Vino Veritas and there's the second part, which is in Aqua Sanitas, which in Latin means uh, in water sanity, which is you have this brilliant idea. So when we talk about uh, using wine or music to break down some brain barriers to having new ideas of seeing things in a different uh, point of view. So it really did start by, I was uh, in Piemonte, I was working with a, a biodiversity project in the vineyard. I was in a beautiful vineyard um, in Piemonte and I was drinking a fantastic Barbera, maybe a bit too much uh, chit-chatting about how I wanted to do something. I don't know. I was, I was playing with ideas in my mind. Well, that was a bit how the first seed uh, was planted. And then, of course, there's the afterwards, the Inaqua Sanitas, which actually involves a lot of market research, way too many Excel sheets, <laughs> <laughs> and um, a little bit of uh, craziness and belief to actually jump and, uh, and go and do it. Yeah, always takes the craziness, I think. Absolutely. And so um, that was just for for a great keeper. That was how this is how the idea came as you were yeah, drunk. It was and, just how the first drink. seeds of the idea were planted. Yeah. But so um, I guess what I'm asking is the like um, you already were passionate about sustainability before that. Right. Mm -hmm. OK. So when did the original, I think, interest in sustainability in general happen for you? Was that, you know, university or as a child or adult? No, no. As a child. So I grew up uh, up till I was 10, 11 um in uh, countryside uh, wine countryside uh, close to porto so i don't saw sustainability as something extrinsic to my own life because i lived surrounded by you know uh, the environmental world the nature you know crops and all those things it just you feel part of it you don't see it as something you need to think outside of it uh then i moved to to the center of porto i studied environmental engineering and uh, that was something around, I don't know, 98, 1998, 1999, when I first started um, looking closely to the concept of sustainability, which is that back then it was mostly you make use of a resource without depleting it mm. and leaving it either the same way you found it or even better for the future generations. And that, that, of course, made all the sense in the world to me, because if you if you very close to uh, agricultural world or agricultural families, as opposed to corporations, you know that the soil is your most important asset and you need to keep it intact or better so that it actually can move forward to the next generation and they can live and prosper from it. Then in, in university, you start understanding that this is not only important for the families that are within agriculture, but that actually um, we don't need to care for the environment because we care for the environment. We are dependent on the environment to survive. Mm. 
And this was the biggest uh, wake, wake up call for me on sustainability, how that we actually do not need, the environment does not need us. We need right. the environment. Right. So we don't care for the environment as something that, you know, it's, it's a pet or a good cause. It's a very selfish cause. We need the environment to yes, survive. Yes, <laughs> yes. And that, I, yeah, I was in university. It was uh, quite a wake-up call. It's also similar to something that Boz said, which is that if you look at the word agriculture, we've forgotten about the culture part. And I think that's what you were saying kind of in the beginning of, you know, it's, if you grow up with that as a part of your culture yeah. of, hey, this soil is important for us. We need this soil. We've had this for generations and we take care of it and we do this and that. Um, and I think also similar to what, you know, Valentina said is if you look at many, you know, cultures in the world that are agricultural, you know, cultures that they look at how do we coexist with, you know, these animals and, and you know, all these types of things. So you're right. And I think I was listening to uh, one of these talks from Alan Watts, who um, I have a friend who's a big Alan Watts fan, and I'd never listened to any until a few days ago. And he was actually talking about Eco Zen. And in Eco Zen, he was saying that the biggest problem with modern, you know, the biggest modern opponent of sustainability, let's say, is that we see ourselves separate from the environment. And he's like, that's the biggest problem is because we're not separate. No, we're part. We're part of that system. Yeah. We're part of the ecosystem. We talk about ecosystems, but we are within. <laughs> we're not outside. We are within and very much dependent on. Yeah. Definitely. But that's what we don't see anymore. We look at it as it's there for us to consume. You know, nature is there to be consumed and for our own need. And I'm not sure at what historical point, you know, it got to where we were so, you know, super egotistical that it's like all of existence is there to serve humankind because we're just supposedly so intelligent. But it does seem like that is the direction that we've kind of, you know, headed is that everything is a resource now. You know, it's, of course, things can be used as a resource, but I mean, it's, it's nature, you know, it's living, but yet we just think of them as, as resources now. I, I, I'm not sure um, we didn't thought of things as a resource before. Uh, I think we just never saw the end of it, and now we are for the first time, so mm. we're feeling threatened. And thank God we are, because we are threatened. Yeah. Uh, I think just before um, industrialization, um, you know, the world of people was very way smaller than it is today. We have access to so many uh, data, and we're talking about data before we started the podcast. <laughs> we have to, we're talking to so many data. We have access to so many different ways of experience lives, and we get access to uh, recordings of history, how things happened in the past. We can make projections for the future. And I think maybe that's the biggest part. We were very dependent on ecosystems before. We felt on our skin how, we, uh, how it was, so that's one difference. What do you and mean by that? Can you explain that? Agricultural societies. You felt it on your daily life how it was to be dependent on nature. Mm. You, you could uh, starve or not. And that was very much, uh, you know, your life was dependent on it. Um, we made a lot of progress in our life. Um, I don't want to trash on that because, you know, infant mortality is down. There's so many wow. beautiful the, things the that happened in, yeah. in, in, in the last years. Uh, but we also removed ourselves very much from the equation of the world. Uh, we go to the supermarket, we buy meat and vegetables pre-packed, and we don't actually know, or worse, we don't feel, we don't recognize 
where that, that comes from and what kind of impact is having uh, on us. So we lost the connection. While before we had no way to lose the connection, we were very, you know, directly dependent on it. Uh, there's good and bad ways about it, but we definitely need to have a bit of a wake-up call because we are being threatened. Our very own existence is being threatened. We're not threatening the environment. I don't believe we're threatening the environment. The environment will change. It will be better for some other species other than us. And I actually like lizards. So. <laughs> yeah. I, I, it's, it's quite sad, you know, because you like what we were talking about before is you're like the eternal optimist type, right? And I'm in normal life, I'm so much an optimist, like always see the positive and everything, almost annoyingly so. But in the general trend in the direction of humanity, I'm not an optimist. Oh, I am. And so this is where we maybe disagree a little bit, but I don't think I have necessarily fundamental reasons why. It's just more that, like what you just said about the environment and how it's changing. I like the way it looks now on earth. You know, I like the way the weather is now. I like the way that um, the climate is. And if you look at, you know, all of the results that we're going to have to deal with in the future because of our own actions, like you say, I think people don't often realize like that climate change of course is not new man-made climate change at this rapid rate is but i think in university i first learned how um i don't remember how many hundreds of years ago or even a thousand whatever but um northern africa actually used to be very fertile and europe actually was not very fertile and so northern africa was actually quite prosperous uh, at the time and then eventually some um climate change happens and then Northern Africa goes kind of barren and then all of a sudden Europe is quite fertile and you see how the political, you know, landscape changes after that. And this, this, you know, world that we kind of like, let's just take North America for example, right? North America is probably one of the luckiest agricultural um, countries or continents in the world, right? Because if you look at the United States, they can feed themselves many times over and export to other countries. And that's a huge political advantage, right? Geopolitical advantage. Absolutely. That we have taken for granted and now we think can never change, even though we had the Dust Bowl and things like that in the past to give us previews of what it might look like. So anyway, my point is that we just act as if this is the way that it'll be forever, no matter what our actions are, what consequences come. And so I think it's just so ignorant that we, you know, just kind of want to ignore these these things and not realize, well, some other place that right now may not be so agriculturally prosperous is going to change and become that. And then we won't be, and we won't like that, but we just don't even have that. Well, I think it's human nature not to like change. Change is scary, you know, but it's a change that we could at least have some, you know, no, we don't have, over. there's no choice. There's no way. We, change is a constant. It's the only yep. thing, you know, for sure is going to happen. Uh, so there's no way we can not, not change. Uh, uh, well, the way we're living uh, nowadays, it's we thought about change. Uh, look at the Netherlands before COVID, for example. We're talking about this country uh, and the way we lived in 2019. Is already is already changed so much to 22 in two years, and it's going to need to change a lot on every every single country. You know. Uh, North America's developed economies, less developed economies, it is going to change. I know for sure that my kids are going to uh, be adults in the world. I won't recognize. Mm. It's just that I hope. How old are your kids now? They are 11 and 9. Mm, okay. Uh, and um, it's just that I hope that it is as it was for me so much better in so many ways, even if for others it's a little less so. 
but it's just different in a different way, in a positive way. So I'm no, I I I, I do want change. I need change. I think everybody needs uh, the way we are uh, living right now is not sustainable in the traditional definition of the world sustainable. <laughs> Uh, so that needs to change. That's yeah, it's just what it is, and we're looking as a, a society uh, at a way that we can make change that is okayish for everybody involved, and that is also a, one of the definitions of sustainable that I am um, very passionate about. Is that in your journey, also as a consumer, when you consume something that it touches positively everybody involved in this life cycle right right if we start thinking about that a lot of things gets it's going to be changed it's going to change yeah but in order for that to happen people have to realize that there's a problem now and like you said about the food system so many people are so far removed from it and the same thing with climate change and politics in today's day and age so many people are just kind of in these bubbles where they're sheltered from the reality they don't see the need. They don't see that there's a catalyst there to make them. Did you, uh, have you read Factfulness, the book? No? Thought maybe you would with your data uh, love. But it's basically, um, I think, to paraphrase, it kind of makes it sound like everything is actually great now, you know, compared to how it's always been in the past. And that's a bit of a, a unfair way to characterize it. But what you said before about how, you know, things are so much better now than they Some have been are. in the past. Absolutely. But I think sometimes when people make that point and they look at all these things, they also ignore the potential of how mu much better many other areas could also be. Absolutely. If we prioritize that. We do need. We need to prioritize. We've gotten so far in so many uh, um, ways. Uh, and it's just, you know, we need to prioritize the ones that are threatening now. Um, we're, we're doing it. We're not doing it fast enough. But, um, but we're doing it and we just need to do more. People need to realize, and uh, unfortunately, um, change of habits um, sometimes happens because we're forced to. It's just the way history has taught us. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Big shifts are always painful. But I think, uh, yeah, I, yeah, well, as I said, I'm a positive. I really think this is going to happen. Yeah. I don't think it cannot not happen. Right. But it is going to be painful for some people, definitely. True. And so you... Um you have an, an engineering background. You said you're an environmental engineer, correct? Mm -hmm. And so what made you study engineering in university? Um, I don't know. I have a wandering mind and I was interested in so many things. I remember I had to choose between journalism and engineering. Crazy is that. <laughs> uh, and, uh, but I, was, I, I have a love of languages as well, which explains the journalist part. But then I was very good with math. And I, I liked it very much. And then the environmental uh, part of it kind of it tickled my curiosity. So I just jumped into it. And then I absolutely loved some big parts of it. The engineering part, I, when I started actually working as an engineer, um, then the, the, the factory building and some, it was a bit uh, less uh, passion work for me. But it is... It is one of those fields where, uh, for curious people, you can go on and on and on in learning. And uh, I think that's what made me feel passionate about it. And then it, made, it felt also very real. It felt very connected to a human experience more than, I don't know, design engineering or something a bit more um, removed 
from the from the, the actual person for where we actually live in. Felt. Mm. I think that was that's what sold me. <laughs> and what did you end up doing with it after you graduated? Ah, uh, I did some. Um, I started being a consultant uh, quite early on in my career path. So I did a lot of consultancy. Uh, I started doing consultancy in waste management. It was very, very directly connected with my environmental engineering degree. And then it just proceeded to uh, sustainability and biodiversity and, uh, and things like that. But I've spent most of my career consulting uh, in uh, different countries, different realities. With governments or public companies? or Yes. Yeah? Very much. So how does it happen? This is a totally random question I just thought of, but how does it happen when certain governments get environmental engineering so wrong? Is it a lack of priority? They don't do, they don't spend enough money on environmental impact studies or things like that before, you know, big projects happen? Um, it's, it's a combination of uh, uh, sometimes bad ingredients and sometimes just the way they interact with them to, with each other. Uh, there's, there's the component of lobbying. Yeah, the money. Uh, which is very big in the decisions that governments make. Uh, and then sometimes you design a beautiful engineering project and um, maintenance is just not possible. Uh, so there's so many ways things can go wrong, but it is mostly a uh, priorities need to be set long term, these kinds of things. And um, a lot, most governments are on a short term uh, view. Mm. So it tends not to uh, work very well. Yeah. It just always seems like in, you know, in all of those Armageddon type movies, there's always the one geologist or uh, expert that comes in and, you know, he's got 47 years of experience and he's warning that the sky is falling and nobody ever believes him. Yeah. And then afterwards, you know, but of course in an Armageddon type movie, the, you know, the problem is that the world is going to end. But in reality, how that works out is, you know, you've got um, environmentalists in, in Houston or scientists, geologists saying, hey, if you keep building things with this much concrete and removing this soil and blah, 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 you're going to have flooding. And they'll say, ah, oh, we'll worry about that later. We, well, we know this is real. Yeah. And then the floods this happen. Is really, and this, is real, this is real in our real world. Yeah. Uh, NASA started warning governments, people about all these things 40, 40 plus years ago. So we just kept going and ignoring and going and ignoring and going ignoring, going for the short term. Yeah. Uh, and now, now we are. Climate change is about that. Is sudden, very dramatic events. Uh, the flooding, the winds, the hurricanes, the the drought. Uh, wildfires. Uh, wildfires. That's that's. It's not about being warmer than normal. It's yep. it's about that. It's about the the sudden dramatic events. Mm. So now we can't ignore it. So do you, as an engineer, uh, because you were speaking earlier about your love of statistics and data and things like that, and so how you can kind of, you know, look at, let's say, just forms of transportation and whatever and not be freaked out by something because you know the odds of you would die or whatever. Do you kind of feel like when you look at the world from this engineering lens that it's much easier to make decisions in, in daily life for you? No, no, because I'm also very much aware that we actually don't know everything. Mm. So engineering a system that you don't know, it's, it's a wild bet. Mm. You need to go and do it, and then you'll know more about the system you're trying to engineer it. But from the start, you actually, you know, you know you don't know. <laughs> <laughs> you know you don't Highest know. Highest level of wisdom, I think. <laughs> yeah. 
I just find it interesting because every time you listen to, you know, engineers talk about things, it's always like, it seems in a very non-emotional way. You know, they seem to be able to compartmentalize and calculate. I'm not very big at being (laughs) non-emotional. I'm good at that. (laughs) That's a... I'm not sure if I have, I have the soul of an engineer. I am very passionate about the things. And so the heart moves me in a lot of my decisions mm-hmm. and sometimes way more than the data. I try to balance things out a little bit, but uh, I, I also, I realize that about myself, that the heart moves me more, yep. uh, that sometimes very um, pragmatic decisions. Well, while I also am quite a pragmatic person, I think, but, um, but no, it is, you you move, uh, you can you use data, use your heart to inform you. But I think I move despite the fact that I know I don't know. Right, yeah, which takes courage, I think. So with your with your entrepreneurship journey, because obviously there has to be so much emotion in that. You know, everybody basically talks about have to you have to be a little bit crazy to become an entrepreneur. So you go from this, most likely what I would assume is a fairly steady life of consulting with environmental engineering. There's always a demand for that. Fairly, you know, well-paying, I would assume. So now you just decide, okay, I'm, I'm going to be an entrepreneur and I'm going to do this, you know, vineyard, you know, thing. And what was the kind of emotional feeling at the time when you kind of made that decision of, no, I, I'm definitely going to take this plunge? Um, I believed I could. So I think that's, that's the, the thing. Uh, there are moments when I bitterly regret because it is very, very hard to be an entrepreneur. <laughs> uh, but um, I actually, I, I don't know, I like you are uh, on a learning journey on so many things, not only about business, uh, marketing, sales, but also about yourself. So you grow with it in the same way. And then I, I just really, really wanted to do it. Mm. I think many people have given that same answer, actually. Yeah. It's like you didn't really feel like you almost had a choice because you wanted to do it so badly. So much. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's it's like that. If I if I would have used data to inform my decision, I should probably not have done it. <laughs> but I really, really, really wanted to do it. But if that were the case, then most people would never become engineers. Like if they actually, I'm sorry, uh, entrepreneurs, if they were going by the numbers of the possible success, then uh, the data would say don't do it. Yes. The data would say don't do it. And but so, I'm I'm thankful for the ones that have done it in the past. They have made our life so much better. Absolutely, totally agree. And so, um, at that moment, when you just decided, you know, okay, I'm, I'm going to do it because I want to do it so much. Did you also encounter, you know, some resistance? The things telling you, uh, but you can't do this, or it's not going to work out, or this is stupid. I encounter resistance every hour of every day. <laughs> I'm serious. There's there's a of course, there's some positive feedback as well, but um, there's so many ways you counter resistance. Uh, yeah. But then maybe I'm going to use my kids. I kind of saw them learning how to walk, how many times they had to fail before they walked or jumped or uh, there's this flick flacks they do today as if I, there's nothing. And I kind of, I'm, I don't know, I think, well, maybe I can do this as well. Wow, that's good. Yeah, I guess if you can use, I like the the thing about kids is it's like they don't judge themselves for falling. If you notice that I saw a kid in the park the other day and the dad was trying to teach the kid how to play football. And so the kid would run and kick it and then fall over and run and kick it and fall over. But, and then of course, even just running, if the kid runs more than 10 meters, it's going to fall. 
So, yeah. But then it just pops up and it doesn't see that as a, I guess it hasn't been taught yet that no, how but to they judge also, failure. Um, you know what's important for me as an entrepreneur is because I do feel like sometimes I don't always feel like success and uh, I fail. I fail a lot, way too much, way more than I would like. Uh, and then sometimes I also fall down and I just don't really feel like getting up. And there's always someone that's a, come on, get up. Uh, so being surrounded by people, uh, by mentors, if you want to call them like that, that are either they have experience, they've done it, they they know what's coming next. They know that, you know, being on the ground with your hurt knee is not how you're going to be forever. Um, but it, people are very important in life as in business, I think is the most important thing uh, to be surrounded by people that inform you, uh, not only just um, offer resistance, but also that inform you on um, ways to wiggle yourself out of difficult situations. Uh, definitely. I read two interesting quotes about this recently, which one was e uh, Bill Gates. And I think he was kind of giving a backhanded compliment to Elon Musk, like almost making fun of him in a way. So he said when somebody asked him about, you know, Elon's success or whatever, he said, Elon has done a fantastic job of assembling a great team of engineers at Tesla and SpaceX, which basically I think he's trying to say Elon's not he doesn't deserve all the credit for those successes because the people that he surrounded himself with are actually great, which is of course a skill in itself, right? To be able to select those engineers and to, you know, acquire that talent and things like that. And I think that that's something that, like you say, with the importance of, of business with the people, um, you know, being able to surround yourself with people who will be also realistic and tell you what you don't want to hear. So the other thing that I read was about Mark Zuckerberg and they said that basically he's pushed out everybody from the board and from his kind of inner circle who is not a Mark Zuckerberg fan, who doesn't really believe in, you know, his vision. And they think that now he's just kind of insulated with all his money in, and, in, his, in a bubble. And so now nobody tells him what he doesn't want to hear. Nobody tells him that he's going to be wrong. Um, the king is naked. Exactly. And I, I find that also, though, quite difficult because let's say that you are, you know, Mark. And in the beginning, a lot of people were also telling you you were wrong then. And you had to think, no, I know better. I believe in this thing so much that I'm going to push through, even though all these people have given me all this negativity. Then you get to this point now where, again, people are telling you you're wrong, and they're all supposedly really smart people. And back in the day, what got you to this successful point is you just had to believe in yourself. But then there's a point where that now becomes your fatal flaw because you- a Liability. Yeah, so- it seems, you know, I've never been the richest man in the world like Mark Zuckerberg became and, you know, isn't anymore. But I don't know how you would be able to see that line when it comes. It might just be the natural evolution of human nature of you, you just can't. Maybe I don't. You know what I mean? Yeah, it's, it's difficult. I don't. But I'm not successful enough to be worried about that line yet. Well, so, so in, the, in the beginning, right, like when you have that negativity, yeah. you need that self-belief. Or else you're going to, like you say, you just won't do it. You have to believe that you can be but better than the self-belief is not narcissism. True. So it's different. Yeah. Uh, I, I also said that despite the fact that I'm an optimist, I'm also a master warrior. <laughs> right, right. Uh, so I, I keep tabs on myself all the time. I doubt myself way more than any, any, anybody I know doubts myself. That's one thing. So I also... You doubt yourself more than anybody you know doubts their own self. No, doubts me. Oh, okay, okay. Uh, or, or at least they tell me. <laughs> <laughs> no, but it's... Uh, I, I don't know. It's I am a master warrior. I really 
keep thinking on how many different paths I can take, the consequences of them, uh, it's okay, it's not okay. I'm always playing with this in my head. And then it's maybe it's a choice to actually keep going. But um, I think that's absolutely possible. I think it happens at a certain time to anybody that becomes uh, very successful. Eventually, they get uh, surrounded by fans um, who feeds into one, their one side or the other. Um, but at this point in my journey, I, I don't think I don't think that's still yeah. uh, relevant no for, sick for of me. Fans. Yeah, yeah. For me, I I don't have uh, groupies or yeah. fans yet. <laughs> Maybe that's the key. Then is that in the beginning, the people who are around you who might support you, they're still going to tell you objective things because they're uh -huh. not your groupies. But then when it becomes the point that the only people who you hear, like you still need to hear the naysayers. You yeah. still need to hear the people who disagree with you. Even if you want to choose to believe in yourself and push forward, you still need to listen to at least. But that's choosing doesn't mean that I don't see that point of view. Exactly. And that I am not informed by it. Right. I don't see as, oh, you don't agree with me. That's, that's bullshit. No, mm -hmm. it's not like that. It's just that I, I see, I listen, I'm informed by it. But I also see there's so many different points of view. And then you just form your own. Yeah. It's... Um, it's with everything, you know, choosing which city to leave, uh, which food to buy, which psychiatrist to choose. I don't know, everything. Yeah. There's so many options. And then I think you need to uh, actually go with the one you feel it suits you. Yeah. So you're saying you think that the key there is the change from, you know, let's call it confidence to narcissism. The point where it's more like you become a deity in your own mind where you're not even really, you know, you don't have to listen to other people. You don't have to consider it's okay to say, I hear you. I understand your point, but I disagree. Yes. Yes. I think so. Yeah. I think so. Also in the interview with Zuckerberg, I think there was some kind of troubling mental health things there because he said that when he wakes up in the morning, he um, feels like he's just been hit by a bag of bricks. Like it's just, that's what, when he reads the emails and he dives into the work and all that stuff and, he says now he does mixed martial arts and things because used to he would run, but now he can't run as a relaxation thing anymore because he can he just thinks too much during the running. And so it also sounds like he's kind of struggling from that uh, mental health burden of... I think um, that's going to be very recognizable for a lot of entrepreneurs, actually. Um, I sometimes wake up feeling like I was hit by a bag of bricks mm -hmm. as well because not, it's not only opening the emails but also the gazillion ideas that some nights I have yeah and then I start working them out I actually also do uh, I, I box and uh, it is fantastic for um, cleaning the mind so I, I, I actually can agree with Zuckerberg on that yeah <laughs> I don't disagree with him at all but so in the struggle of kind of entrepreneurship you just said like the the waking up with the the ton of bricks like what have you found maybe the most detrimental part you know to your mental health i think sometimes it's it's very easy to run into burnout i think especially if you're passionate about something to set um, boundaries uh, on yourself and to recognize what boundaries you need to to set and which at what time that is uh, a bit uh, it's, it's not black and white it's not easy explainable yeah. and uh, especially for people who have a lot of energy uh it's easy to just go a little bit too far yeah, uh, without you understanding that you're actually doing it. And, uh, and then anxiety uh, starts kicking in and it's, 
it was difficult the last three years. Because of COVID and the inflation, yeah. like you mentioned before. That was difficult. It's, uh, it's difficult. Yeah. And so you have to overcome so many, there's the normal problems and issues of a startup. So Grapekeeper was started at the end of 2018, the baby. So it already had all the babies. It was still trying to learn how to walk or to feed themselves and things like that. And, and then there's this added layer of uh, problems, which also they speed up learning. There's also the good things and the bad things. Uh, they speed up learning. There's also a lot of good things that came with it. But um, it's a juggle. It's a juggle. So you fall, you get up. You fall, you get up. And I think with mental health, it's the same. Acknowledge. And then find a way to get up and get better. Yeah. Learn from the fall. Yeah. And keep building yourself up from, from there, I think. I agree. I, I think that also you said something very important in the beginning, which is that the boundaries and the setting, the kind of goals and things like that is that it's very, I, I think if you live this life where it's like, okay, you know, I have, let's say I have, 200 unanswered customer emails or something like that. And I've just got to, I'll just get through these and then I'll stop or I'll just get through these. Like people, entrepreneurs, especially, especially solopreneurs or people with very small teams, but you're the core, you know, lead person. You always set this thing of, okay, I'll stop after that. And I'll stop after that. And I'll stop after that. And you never do because as soon as you do, if you get into this habit, um, it's always, now you look at the next thing. This became kind of a problem for me with um uh, with like web programming, right? When I started to build my own website and add new features and things like that, it was like I would always have this one thing, and it's like this is the thing that's keeping me from happiness or whatever in this website. And you'll you'll look on, you know, you search and you search and you try different things, and eventually you figure it out. And it's only a couple of seconds that you have this nice little you know endorphin rise where you feel good, and then ah, oh, but I also needed to do this. And then brr, here you go again. And then there's another problem and you're stuck in that cycle. And I heard on the Huberman Lab podcast, neuroscientist, and he talks about you have to give yourself these moments of the reward. You have to actually stop and enjoy that reward or else your you know, kind of dop dopamine circuitry system is never going to actually work the way that it's supposed to. Because in the way that humans were designed through evolution is basically you have this you know, reward that you're going after. Let's call it an animal that you're trying to hunt. Then you kill it. It's over. We we get this reward now. You know, we're happy. Let now let's relax and let's kind of whatever. We eat it. Tomorrow we do it all over again. But now in modern times, like when you're a solopreneur and you give yourself these little benchmarks, but then you never actually stop to celebrate these small no, wins. No, 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 because you, you, you catch the mouse, me, myself. I catch the mouse. I'm still halfway through eating it. I'm already seeing the next yeah. one. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I don't actually enjoy that meal. I just go for the next one. And but I think a lot of you know, solopreneurs like, you know, myself, uh, do feel that. Um, I was talking about the power of mentoring. So I've been listening to people that are far down the road than I am. And I remember uh, someone I admire very much who told me, Anna, you need to be patient. Well, isn't that an anti-Anna statement? <laughs> <laughs> I looked at him like, oh my God, I don't think that's possible. But um, the life has made me, you know, very much like, oh, well, actually you have to. And now that I'm experiencing a little bit with forcing myself with being a little bit more patient while it's like contra nature for me, it, it, it does that. It, it allows me to actually look back and say, oh, well, I actually enjoy this. And then build up energy. 
And it's a different kind of energy. It's a less anxious energy, uh, a bit more um, in-depth energy that you experience not only instead of just touching things like they are on fire and experiencing them, the good things and the bad things as well, yep. just moving, jittering from one thing to the other. It's a little, it's different. And I, I want to learn more about that in entrepreneurship as well. So, just go ahead. A bit more... A little bit more like conscious work yeah, in a way. Like, yeah, interesting. I've been trying to do that as well. It's like, I mean, there's you hear about this all the time, like conscious eating or conscious whatever, but conscious work is definitely something that I'm trying to get more into. And I think um, also even if you just look at advice for, you know, programming and things like that, they'll say, you know, break it up into the smaller chunks because apparently one of the discouraging things is if you have a really, you know, long project and you can't see the light at the end of the tunnel, that's terrible for motivation. Yes, of course. So I think this idea of... That's the of, root of the procrastinators. <laughs> say it again? Uh, procrastination. That's ah, the yeah. root of it. Yeah. Uh, no, but um, yes, it definitely is with life, with everything. With everything. But I, a lot of entrepreneurs do keep the, in mind the bigger picture. You know, that's mm-hmm. that goal that is very far removed. I don't actually think it can be any different way because it's very difficult not to keep the eye on the goal, on the moon. If you want to reach the moon, you have to keep the eye on the moon, but just think on all the small steps you have to take it to reach there. Yeah. And then be able to go sideways because it can be perfect on paper and then in reality things happen a bit differently. True. Yeah. Well, I think that's part of it, right, is the agility. You always have to be able to kind of roll with the punches and boxing per se. But I do find that's the difficult balance, right, is that, Okay, so people would say simply, you have to break the goals down into smaller goals and then just focus on that one. But then also the issue is that you need to focus on the moon sometimes because that's what gives you the motivation gives direction, yeah. to focus on the smaller goals as well. So that balance of kind of, you know, staying in that middle, you're always going to though, I think that's human nature, right? Is like this fluctuation is what it is to be human. Uh, I'm actually stealing this from my yoga teacher. Actually, I feel bad if I don't credit her because she was basically saying this the other day. I was like, life is about the balance. Yeah. And so you're going to go one way and then the other way too far. You can never stay in the middle the whole time. Exactly. That's what being human is. And I thought that was so like perfect the way that she said it, you know, because I will be too hard on myself when I go too far one way. What you said about the worrying and the self-talk and it's like, I'll tell myself, my God, man, like, oh, why are you doing this? You know, this is wrong or, you know, this is not good for you and blah, blah, blah. And then, but you have to accept that that's being human. You cannot be perfect. And, and also the self-talk is needed. You know, this is, you're, you're keeping checks and balances on yourself. Just knowing how to be kind and stop and just be balance, knowing that balance is about movement. Mm. Balance is not about being still in one path. It's about movement. Right. You that's know. a great point. Yeah. So how, what has been kind of maybe the best, you know, antidote or best tool that you've used possibly in your life to kind of in your entrepreneurship journey to kind of keep yourself on balance as you move through it? I'm fed by people. I'm that kind of person. So uh, I'm textbook extrovert. I, I, I'm fed by people. So being around people uh, balances me. Um, physical exercise. So there's the boxing, there's walking, mm. uh, walking in, you know, it doesn't matter. Is it in the city? Is it in nature? Just walking works for me very much. It's also a way for me to process ideas. 
Yeah. I process ideas far better if I'm in movement than if I'm sitting on a chair. Uh, and and then yeah, it's that. It's exercise, food, drinking well, sleeping well, and being fed well uh, by people. So being cared for and uh, eating well. It's like a houseplant. <laughs> I might be one. <laughs> <laughs> it's a good life if you have an owner that waters you regularly. Yeah, so it's surrounding, yeah, I think it's it's uh, quite basic actually, but it it's, it works better than anything else. It sounds basic, but it's actually quite difficult, I think, um, for... Most basic things are. <laughs> true but I, yeah for the majority of the population it's already hard to do all those things that you said sleep well eat well exercise like you're saying these super simple that nobody would argue with you things but yet for people with nine to fives and very stable schedules that's hard for them to do and then you take entrepreneurs especially young ones right because the young ones have so much energy but i never thought it was it was easy no I, no, no no so yeah so yeah. what i'm saying is that um it's interesting that the things that you do that you're saying, you know, that they're simple, I guess, right? They're not easy because that's that daily grind of staying in that habit and keeping that commitment. I think that's the only way that you can do it. And sometimes I forget to do them and then reality kicks in and I'm, I'm not as balanced as I used to be. And just so life reminds me of going back to doing them. So, but that's, yeah, that's what really works. So what have been, um, because I mean, and you can also say if it's mental health, you know, or something like that, and we'll move on. And cause since we kind of already covered it, but what has maybe, maybe been your biggest struggle as an entrepreneur? Um, you know, especially also, I, I don't like the way that it's positioned as if like, when I say as a female entrepreneur, like it makes you this super, you know, rare exotic species, but I do want to acknowledge, of well, course, we're still that, rare and exotic, but I hope we're not <laughs> in the future. Yes. <laughs> uh, and it is a different experience. For it female is a very different experience, you know, and we're going to talk about data, how 99% of funding goes uh, to male entrepreneurs as opposed to 1% or in some places, 4%, in some places, 5%. So it is, we have a way more, uh, it's, it's harder to get uh, to certain things. Um, but you know, which is, it's good and it's bad. It is what it is. Uh, I just hope it keeps getting better and we get surrounded by people that make it better. Um, but, um, I have basic things from an entrepreneurship. Uh, I want to grow my business. I want to get more clients. I want to get the process of my company better. So those are all daily things. Struggle, daily struggles with daily those. struggles yeah. uh, that I'm always worried about, and uh, and then you know uh, how to actually do all these things while uh, uh, dealing with you know personal private life. Uh, it's just very humane. I think it's they're very yeah. I think uh, that's one thing is people, transversal. Yeah, very universal. People should just stop expecting that being human is easy. No, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I think it's hard. Um, so um, what is your kind of then, you know, your ultimate vision or your, your, your goal of kind of like, um, let's say that, you know, for me, if I said that my ultimate goal was just freedom or something like that, like, what is your kind of broad, this is what I want for my With life and my business. Yeah. Kind of the whole thing. Cause, well, cause it's kind of hard to separate, right? Your life and your entrepreneurship now are. 
course, you don't want to identify with your business, but it is hard to separate the two. So with Grapekeeper or entrepreneurship in general? Let's start with entrepreneurship in general. Uh, safety and meaning. Mm. Great, succinct answer. Safety and meaning. It is, uh, it's a way of giving meaning to one's life and meaning is very important to keep moving forward, uh, especially in uncertain times. I find it, but it's also the feeling that I'm uh, adding pieces to this puzzle of creating safety for both me and my family, which is very important to me. Mm. So ultimately the goal of everything I do uh, in life is that. Have you found it easier to stay motivated now that you have a family? Because I've heard quite a few people say that once they had mouths to feed, all of a sudden it was a whole new level of drive that they kind of had because they knew I don't know if I can be uh, uh, that insightful uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, there are moments you know it's very different when you have babies or but when I didn't have babies I was not an entrepreneur so I can't really compare mm. okay true and uh, then I don't know but I am I have moments of being very focused I have others that I wonder a little bit more and just, I don't know. I don't know how to answer that because my reality is what it is. Yeah. And I mean, I only know the way that I have. Exactly. Which is, so it's just difficult when you hear people say like, and I think there's so many of these trendy statements that get made on podcasts and stuff where people don't really fully mean them. But I've heard a lot of people say, oh, you know, the my life totally changed when I had my kids because now it's like they depend on me. So this business has to work. And I'm also not even sure that that's the healthiest way to go about it because oh. probably putting too much pressure on yourself. But so I was just wondering maybe if you had any uh, insight on that. But so then for Grapekeeper, the ambition for that. I think the ambition for, I, I want, um, I, I really, I, I want Grapekeeper, as I said, to be, uh, to touch everybody in a very positive way throughout the life cycle. So from the customer to the uh, wine producer to the community where the wine producer is uh, uh, inserted and um, to offer the best possible experience to all of them and then i would like to uh i would like to grow in the digital part of the business which grapekeeper started as a platform and then we 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 had to move back a little bit and growing more in that direction again and also offer a variety of experience not necessarily with wineries alone what so can you explain of maybe what that would be well if you work with regenerative farming uh, and with uh, sustainable farming it's our um, biodiverse farms, which a winery is a farm. Uh, you start seeing, you don't see this typical vineyard uh, picture of rows and rows of uh, uh, manicured, well-kept uh, vines. Oh, really? No. Ah, okay. A biodiverse ecosystem looks uh, way more wild and colorful than that. So you end up having a lot more um, normally typical other products as well, other than grapes. Uh, and I would like to uh, grow more into giving that experience to my customers as well. Uh, so apart, we're already growing a little bit more into arts and things like but diversify a little bit and growing uh, on the kind of experience I give to both ways. Mm. Being uh, more and more and more and more uh, down to the nitty gritty, I think. I need to, I learn, I'm looking for partners. I'm looking for a lot of people to join me. Uh, and I think that's going to be important in fulfilling this, uh, this mission. Mm. 
But so it still goes back to the experience for you because that's what you said in, in yes. the beginning. Is It is very much the experience. Grapekeeper is very much about humans. It's not a product. Mm. It ends with a product, but the product is just a token of the experience. It is, it's about the experience. You know, it's, it's interesting because like I said in the beginning, um, you, when I read the website and stuff, like you don't really know if this is, you know, is this marketing speak? Is this just the buzzword somebody put on a website? But there is something about, and I don't know if it comes through in the podcast or not through the video or whatever. I think it probably does. Right. But when I speak with people like you and people like Boz and people like Valentina, um, when you talk about, you know, the environment and, and you're kind of, I don't know, your passion for it. It really does. It is like tangible in a way. You know what I mean? Like, like you can tell that you're not lying if, is what I'm trying to say, <laughs> because it's almost like people who really care about a certain sports team and then you ask them about it and then they just like, they get in this flow state where they start talking about it. You guys are all kind of like that, you know? And I think, you know, it would have been easy for you to kind of slip into, you know, business mode there where it's like, oh, we want to grow top line revenue, <laughs> do this and that. But again, I ask you one more question, what, 45 minutes separated and now it's right back to the experience that you give people. I do need the revenue to keep being able to give the experience. <laughs> <laughs> so that's why I worry about the revenue. Um, but, um, but it is, it is, yeah, the experience is very, it's, it's very central to how, why I started this. And if you could maybe just like um, sum up for the the experience of what you in just kind of like one sentence kind type of deal, the thing that you want your customers to get from this whole experience with Great Keeper, what is it that you want them to get from the whole experience? I want them to feel connected. I want them to feel that not only they bought something nobody else had, but they have learned and grew and they got to share this. With, uh, with the people that they love the most. So I want it to be very different than buying something out of a shelf. It is, um, they, I want them to feel connected. And has that been rewarding so far, seeing yes. these people? Yes, it has. Yeah, <laughs> I can imagine. Um, do you have any good stories of like uh, any of your customers so far? Yeah, I have customers who bought this to offer as a, as a uh, wedding present. Uh, I have, uh, you know, whenever... I get one of those pictures of them in a, this table. I don't know. I imagine the people in the table are either friends or family or something. And this proudness, this shine in their eyes of mm -hmm. them sharing this wine with their name on with the family and friends. I get a dopamine kick out of that. <laughs> I bet. Yeah, I do. It's crazy how technology has made things like this possible. So you talked about it being a platform and, um, you know, with the with the ability to be able to share the cost of a vineyard with all of these people around the world who you may not even know, but they're all connected via you. Like I have a friend who actually moved to Portugal last year and he's getting married uh, later this month. So I'm going to, to Lisbon for the wedding. And um, he has this uh, company called Drizzle Me. That's an olive oil company because he's Greek. And so he grew up in Greece. Well, he spent a lot of time when he was growing up in Greece. And he has a good friend who was Greek that he met in Brussels. Mm -hmm. And the friend has a, an, an uncle or something like that who, you know, actually makes the olive oil in Greece, just like the family way that they've done it, you know, for generations. And so then they thought, well, why don't we sell this, you know, because we can actually offer this authentic olive oil that other people, you know, aren't offering. And of course, it has to be more expensive. So they have to tell the story and they have to show the family and all this kind of stuff. And that just wouldn't have been possible 20, 
20 years ago or, or more than that, because without, without, you know, with the amount of money that they did and with the yes, doing it with an iPhone and, and these kind of things. And so it is kind of, we uh, speaking of living in a good time and being positive about humanity and things like that. It's nice that we live in a time where technology has made things like it this. It is, it is. There's a lot, a lot of positive uh, things. And uh, with society as it is today and, I think the choice is on all of us, definitely on corporations and governments, because they inform a lot of your daily decisions uh, on how to use this for good. Yeah. A lot of the technology we have today can be used for good or for bad. We just need to make the right decision and just keep moving and keep trying to make good decisions. Definitely making pressure to our governments and our corporations to also make good decisions. Yeah. And just now we're a society. So. Well, but and like you said before, you and providing this experience to people that, you know, let's say that it's, you know, a hundred people, right. That go through this experience. That's a hundred people that talk to maybe at least five people about it each. So then that's 500 people that hopefully vote that hopefully next time that this issue comes up, you, you talked about it before of when sustainability is a word, an academic term. There's no feeling to it. Exactly. It feels a bit abstract to you. It is. Right. It's abstract. But then when you experience it, all of a sudden now you realize they're just using a word to communicate a concept that you actually really care about. And now when people are talking about that as a voting issue, you're not thinking, oh, that's just some political speak. You're like, no, actually, I want to listen to what this candidate is saying because I now know this means something to me via the experience. Exactly. So, and if you compound that with, you know, you're hopefully not the only one doing things like this. And obviously on the podcast, you can hear other guests who are doing really cool things. Like I, I, I do have hope for humanity in that regard, right? Is that this is bubbling up more and more. Like people do actually want the world to be better than the way they found it. I do think, uh, I'm going to be honest, I think people are intrinsically good. I agree with you. We don't disagree on that. I think people are intrinsically good. Um, most people actually like to be good and they tend to share. And there's a lot of experience and they're backing me up on that. <laughs> really, really? Uh, that people are intrinsically good. So there is there is data that to yeah. back up that. Yeah, there's, there's, uh, there's some cool... Uh, uh, experiments uh, on uh, decision making and things. What I think about every day, what makes me think humans are intrinsically good, is the fact that we can actually walk around the city, and you, I can walk out in front of a car, and it's gonna stop. You know what I mean? Like if it was this, you know, dog eat dog kind of thing, he could just run me over. <laughs> you know what I mean? But yet we do things every day with this crazy amount of trust and this social contract with people. Of course, that you. A naysayer could kind of come in and say the only reason he doesn't run you over is because he doesn't want to get run over when he's walking around later. But I think it's more than that. People do nice things for each other all the time. And it's, you know, we look at these negative things like murder rate, you know, homicide rate, whatever, and these types of things. But actually, if you look at how many people there are on earth and how few murders there are every day, it's kind of a miracle, I think, that we're all able to coexist so relatively well. But most people are not murderers. True, true. There's data to back that up. Absolutely. <laughs> Most people are not murderers. So they're just, um, they're exceptions. Mm. So in the, the near future, the plans, because you're based in Portugal, right? Well, I'm between here and there. I'm in both places, mm. actually. But uh, the last two years uh, with Corona, I ended up looking for a bit more support in uh, Portugal. And, and now I started being more here. And it's, I'm still... And so how does that work? Because um, obviously the, the vineyards are all located in Portugal, right? But no, you, no, I mean, no. you have them in France and no, also no, Italy. No, 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 they're right? not. They're not. Actually, my first vineyard was in Italy. Right. So the vineyards are in uh, Italy, 
Germany, France, Spain, and Portugal. I only acquired a vineyard in Portugal a year ago. Ah, okay. Well, wow. I acquired some. A producer joined Grapekeeper. I don't acquire the vineyards. Uh, <laughs> uh, I wish. But um, no, no, actually not. It started very much uh, here in the Netherlands, uh, ah. very much based in Rotterdam. And, uh, and the vineyards are scattered throughout Europe for now. For now, what do you, what do you mean? Oh, Uh-oh. there's a lot of cool places I would like to uh, this to reach. <laughs> so we think in California, South Africa, Chile, what yeah. are we? Yeah, going a little more global. Interesting. Yeah, okay. Definitely, definitely want to go more global with, uh, with the kind of different experience I can offer, different kind of outcomes in wine. And that actually seems realistic, is it? Yes, not yeah. on my own, with the proper uh, partners, definitely. Like you were mentioning very, before. Very, very realistic. Mm, interesting okay um and so yeah basically i just kind of want to um you know i guess wrap up with just kind of the the summary of how do you you know basically like if you could just kind of you know summarize how your life has gone because i think a lot of people you know when they when they listen to this and they think about entrepreneurship you're probably you know in one of a few categories you are in the category of i know the entrepreneurship is not for me but i love to listen to people who do it and that's okay right entertainment whatever and then you have those people who are doing it and they're struggling and they're listening to you and they're like, oh, yes, you know, I needed to hear that. I need to go to the gym more. I, I believe oh, I need to sleep more, eat better, whatever. Then you have that category of people who are they're on the fence. They're thinking about it. Um, maybe they have, you know, like you were saying, that that nine to five is just not quite challenging enough for them. Like you said before, you need challenges. Um, mm-hmm. What kind of advice could you give people, you know, just reflecting on your to whole reach journey? Up. Reach uh, to reach out. To reach out. One of the cool things that I hope you said you asked me what I wanted to achieve, and there's one I forgot, mm. is that the more successful you become, the more you give yourself this uh, chance of actually looking back where you came from and extending the the hand, and so that other people that are where you were can also climb to where you are now. And if people really want, and I had other people that reached out to me. I reached out to them and they gave me the hand and they helped me build. So it's, I think there's a lot of entrepreneurs uh, that are willing to share not only their experience, but also what they learn, the good and outs and help others leapfrog some challenges. Yep. Uh, so if you are inspired by the stories of entrepreneurs, you heard by the highs and the lows uh, and uh, definitely reach out. Um, we like to help each other. We we depend on the help of each other. Yeah. The community, I think, is also the best part. Like, uh, I was telling people that, you know, when you hear about the digital nomad thing, like, that's the dream is I can travel. It's very, it's a very learning. It's very lonely to be an entrepreneur. That's exactly what I was about to say, is that you hear about the dream of being like a digital nomad or something, but then what you actually realize is it's actually quite lonely because, you know, if you're really traveling from place to place and um, you... You don't make a lot of friends. Maybe you make a few, but the community I found is like the most rewarding part for me of being an entrepreneur. Those people who get you and they can kind of share in your experience. And when I've been in communities, you know, like say a Bali or something like that, where there's all these people around who are doing their own businesses and whatever, and you feel that energy, it's like infectious, you know? And um, so, yes, being an entrepreneur is very lonely, I think. And that's why I think co-working spaces are great. I think, you know, these meetup groups and support groups and stuff, because, you know, what you were saying before is um, most likely if you're going through your own, you know, mental issues with it, other people are going through that too. Other people have been through that. 
um, or something similar, right? And I think it's it's great advice to reach out to people and you know ask people what they think and and ask for help because we're all going to need help, you know, at some point. Absolutely, nobody can make it on their own. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Well, Anna, thank you so much for doing this. Um, so people can go to grapekeeper.com. Yes. And they can check out everything that you have to offer. And then is there anywhere that they should go to kind of just follow your journey, whether that's, you know, LinkedIn they can or Instagram? follow me on that. Well, I'm not very good on LinkedIn. I need to uh, do that. But um, Instagram of both Grapekeeper and my personal one, uh, and they can reach out to me. Uh, via the the website www.greatkeeper.com or uh, via you know uh, social media. All right, I will put all of your contact details in the show notes and stuff like that, so people uh, can get it. Well, thank you very much. Love, I'm so excited for people to hear this episode because there's you can't help it, but when you hear you say certain things, I'm like, oh my god, that's a great quote. Oh my god, that's a great quote. So really loved it. Enjoy the conversation. Thank you so much for thank you, Lucas, down. for inviting me. Bye, everybody. Bye.